0: Alright, let's go ahead and take our Bibles out. We're going to open to John chapter 6. We're going to look at the first 29 verses. It says, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following Him because they saw the signs that He was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there He sat down with His disciples. Now the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii. The denarii was about the average person's daily wage. Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that He had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take Him by force and make Him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by Himself. When evening came, His disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But He said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take Him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there I remember reading in one of C.S. Lewis's books, and he said, you know what, we're like children who are content to make mud pies in the slums because we have no idea what it would be like to have a holiday at the beach. And what he was talking about was our existence here, how we get so caught up in our earthly existence and the events of this life that we become completely content in it not recognizing the greater that God has in store for us through a relationship with Him. The problem with human beings that he was trying to put forward, and he he had a pretty good grasp on human nature. If you've never read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, I would recommend it. The problem with us is a lot of times is not that we set our sights too high, but we set them too low. And it kind of flips, right? Because on one way of looking at it, sometimes we're trying to gain so much, grab so much from life, That it looks like our heights are set higher than what we can actually reach. But if you look at it from a bigger perspective, trying to get everything you can out of life right now is actually setting your sights too low. Is you're focused on all the here and now and not the greater that is beyond that. And so uh, when you look at it from one scope or on one scale, it looks like, boy, we've got our sights set high. I'm going to get what I can out of this life. And Christ looks at us and says, actually, you've got your sights way too low. You're settling for the temporal things that are around you and missing the eternal things that are in front of you. That satisfaction, and I guess that's what, when I think about this passage, what is what is John chapter 6 about? In its application to us, it's it's about that satisfaction. Achieving satisfaction. Not for the end goal of achieving satisfaction, but because... Christ has provided for us satisfaction. But you know what? When you look at uh, people's lives and as they struggle through life and they live out their life, often it's like grasping at the wind. A couple of weeks ago I was driving down the road and there was a receipt sitting on the console of my truck. And I rolled down the windows and I'm going down and this this receipt blew up off of the console and it starts floating around my truck. and It's kind of going to the, from the back seat to the front seat. And, and so I'm driving down the road and I'm watching this receipt and I'm kind of... Try to grab it, and then I'm thinking, oh, maybe I should just hit the windows. I'll close the windows, and it'll land. Then I can do the deal with it or whatever. And you know what? Shoo! Out the window it goes. <laughs> Missed it all together. You know, sometimes finding satisfaction is like that. It's like just outside of your reach all the time. And, and that's a, often the experience of people. In fact, I think there are certain things that you don't actually find by pursuing them. You don't find happiness by a pursuit of happiness. Even though it's guaranteed to us in our Constitution, we have the right to a pursuit of happiness. But you don't find it by looking for it. If you try to search for happiness, you tend to become very narcissistic and put yourself as the central focus in your life. And you'll never really, really receive satisfaction through a narcissism. You'll never really receive happiness through a focus on self or self-centeredness. Happiness actually comes as a byproduct of serving God and others. Happiness just comes from that. That's what I always thought was wrong with the self-esteem movement. About 30 years ago, they really started pushing the self-esteem movement. And I thought, this is a problem. You don't get a healthy self-esteem by focusing on your self-esteem. Satisfaction. Everybody's looking to be satisfied in one way or another. Whether or not you ever achieve it comes with how well you end up lining up with reality. And the reality is the only real satisfaction comes through Christ from God. It's it's not something we can achieve, it's something that's provided for us. The Bible actually has a lot to say about satisfaction. Ecclesiastes chapter five and verse ten, it says he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Nor he who loves wealth with his income This also is vanity. You see, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Just like that receipt, it just kind of keeps eluding you. If money is your focus, then having this much, uh, your focus will push you farther ahead. You'll need that much to be happy, and then you'll need that much. It's kind of like, remember, who was it, Rockefeller, I think it was, the richest man at at the time in the whole world, was asked how much money is enough money, and he said just a little bit more. Who will have money never has money enough? And it doesn't matter what it is. It, money is just a category. You can put any other category on that. He who would have success at work. Never have enough success at work. You always have one more thing. You want to accomplish one more thing to make you feel satisfied. No, no matter what it is. Uh, appetites. He who would have food. Will never have food enough. Alcohol. Sexual desires. No matter what area that you say, well, if I could just be this, then I would be satisfied. You will never be that. It will constantly be one more, one more, one more. And you won't receive that satisfaction. In Leviticus chapter 26, and verse 26, for people that are trying to find satisfaction outside of God, it says, "...when I break up your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied." In Hosea chapter 4 verses 10 and 11 it says, They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine and new wine, which take away the understanding. In Micah chapter 6 and verse 14 he says, You shall eat but not be satisfied and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away but not preserve and what you preserve I will give to the sword. God tells us very plainly that, look, if you're going to look for satisfaction in worldly things, if you're going to look for satisfaction in the things this world can provide or, or in sinful appetites and things like that, says you will never be satisfied. It will always be eluding you. Now, on the positive side of things, and it is very encouraging to see like in Joel, Joel would talk about how one day God's going to turn and provide a new heart for His people and a new beginning and a new hope. In Joel chapter 2, and verse 19, it says, "...the Lord answered and said to His people, Behold, I am sending to you grain and wine and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations." In verse 26, he says, "...you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dwelt wondrously with you, and My people shall never again..." be put to shame. Proverbs chapter nineteen, verse twenty three says, The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. And Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five and verse six, says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In the passage that we find here, Jesus actually preached Probably in between the last passage that we looked and the one we're looking at now is when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, a lot of things have been happening. Where chapter 5 ends and chapter 6 starts, when you read through it, you almost think it's like just the next day. It's not actually the next day, it's kind of the next holiday. Because remember, chapter 5, he was at a holiday and we don't really know which holiday it was. It could be Passover, or it could have been the Feast of Tabernacles. If it's a Passover, that means it's been a year. Now, to the beginning of chapter 6, because now we're coming right up to Passover again. If it's the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, commemorating the time where they lived in tents with God in the wilderness, then it's been about six months. So so at any rate, it's been six months, a year, since the conversation you just had with them, with the religious leaders about Moses. And for John's purposes, they're, they're, this is one of... Right connected to the other. He just gets done talking about Moses and now we're going to see Jesus acting like Moses and providing bread for the for the people. But what Jesus is doing within this passage is he's trying to get their attention because they are trying to be satisfied. But they're content to be satisfied with the wrong things or with the lesser of the things, and Jesus is trying to raise the bar here. In fact, I would say kind of the whole chapter hinges on verse twenty seven. Verse 27, he says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Don't work for the food that perishes. What is he saying? Don't be don't be content with the food that perishes. Set your focus, set your sights on the food that endures to eternal life. Don't be seeking satisfaction in the temporal, the, the, the little things that we have here. Set your sights higher than that. You're destined for more than that eternal life he mentions that repeatedly as we go through the passage but I think we'll hold off and get to that in just a little bit but you know it's it's exactly that concept why we are told to be content with the things that we have here you know it's 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 kind of ironic because on one hand we're told to be content with the things that we have here but we're always trying to grab more of them to be satisfied in that but he tells us that's not where satisfaction lies you need to be content here, stop trying to grab more of this so that you can focus here on the eternal and then guess what you have? Satisfaction. You'll be satisfied. You'll get the bread that brings life, not just the bread that's temporary. It's really kind of another one of those Christian paradoxes. In order to get, you give. If you want to live, you got to die. This is kind of one of those things which we keep grabbing at things thinking it will bring satisfaction. He says, actually, you want satisfaction, you got to let go of that stuff. When you can let go of that, then you'll be able to focus on the things that really give you true satisfaction. And that's exactly why the book of Hebrews would tell us in chapter 13 and verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You see, in Hebrews, He's encouraging us to the same thing. To be content with the things of this world why so that we find satisfaction in the things of the next find satisfaction in the presence of Christ and the presence of Christ will bring satisfaction is much more satisfying than the presence of any other thing that we can own or any other hobby that we can participate in or any other occupation that we can excel at or any other relationship uh, that we can enjoy Christ is much more satisfying in fact when you look at this of these miracles All four Gospels cover the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. I believe it's the only miracle that all four Gospels cover. And they all testify to the same thing. And they all ate and they were satisfied. And it's that satisfaction they received, that fullness, that Christ recognized inside of them and brought them into this conversation where He would probe deeper into their hearts and encourage them to grab the satisfaction that is from only Him. And so as we look at it here this morning, our main premise is finding satisfaction. Now to do that, the first thing we want to look at is the miracles. The miracles. I keep asking myself one question as we work our way through the Gospel of John. Why these miracles? Miracles are a big part of the book of John. We've mentioned many times that he used the word sign over and over and over to point to miracles and that those miracles have a purpose. We just saw it very detailed in chapter 5. The purpose of the miracles is to present who Christ is, that he's the Son of God. It's the evidence for who he is. And so miracles are a huge part, the main part of the Gospel of John. He says toward the end, he says, you know what, if all the things that he'd done were to be recorded, then the book's All the books in the world wouldn't contain all of it. But He's selected these ones. My mind keeps going to that. Why did He select these? He presents eight different miracles that Christ did. Why these ones instead of some of the others? And when I come to these two, I think there's very good reason. He feeds 5,000 people with one boy's lunch. Actually, much more than that. It says 5,000 was just counting men. And then you have the women. You have children. Most people guess that it's probably somewhere... 10 to 20,000 people. This is a miracle that cannot be really questioned. <laughs> Nobody disputes the fact that it happened. This is an enormous miracle to feed 10 to 20,000 people with one kid's lunch. That is, that is astounding. To skip on to the next one a little bit, the Jesus walking on water, it goes to great lengths to say that everybody knew that Jesus stayed back here up on the mountain and the disciples got into the boat and left and it was the only boat. So how did Jesus get from this part of the lake over to this part of the lake? And He walked on water. Now that's phenomenal, right? When you think about it, of all the miracles that we know of of Christ, this one gets referenced in society quite a bit. In fact, I think more than most. Why? Because somebody will make a reference to somebody else as if they were perfect. And yeah, you should see them walk on water. We don't walk on water. We can't do it. Not only that, but think about it. In this one miracle, there's actually several. Because we see Jesus walking on the water. And if you read the other Gospel accounts, you see that Peter is invited to come out and join Him. So that enhances the miracle. And then not only that, but Jesus tells them not to be afraid. And they let Him into the boat and He calms the storm. The storm calms. And it says, and immediately they're at shore. And so you have this other miracle that's just full of the miraculous And we look at those kind of things and say, okay, now I can see why John would choose these two miracles. Yeah, walking on the water, nobody does that. That's, that's clear. Feeding 10 to 20,000 people with one boy's lunch, that's an amazing demonstration. But I think that one, that one goes even further. Because if you look at the beginning of the passage, it says in verse 2, a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that He was doing on the sick. And so they've been seeing Him heal people. Like I said, it's been a six months to a year since the last passage. And he's doing on teaching and a lot of things. In fact, the disciples have been sent out on a preaching tour and they've just gotten back from that. And so there's all these things happening. And uh, these people are watching Him do all these healings and, and stuff. And, and because they saw the signs, they are following Him. And so that's why He's got this huge crowd come out to Him because of the signs. But notice what He says to him. In verse 26, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking Me, not because you saw the signs. Wait a minute. At the beginning of this, it said they were seeking Him because they saw the signs. And that is why they came out to Him. But then after He feeds them, they come again. They follow Him around the lake, right? Because they come to Him. He feeds them. He goes up on the mountain away from them. He comes down walks across the lake and gets away from them. Now they follow Him. So they they hop on boats, they enlist boats, and they go and they follow Him. And so now they're coming to Him again. And now He says, ah, now this is different. This time, it's not because you saw the sign. He says, you want to know why you follow Me? It's because you ate and you were filled. They participated in this miracle. What Jesus provided, they ate. And they were satisfied. And He says, you know what? Ultimately, you know what you're looking for? satisfaction but you're looking for it in the wrong places you're trying to find it here and it's over there you're trying to find it in the you're trying to find it even in in the miracles and it's not in the miracles it's in it's in me he's saying the satisfaction isn't in the bread that he fed the 5000 with or the fish the satisfaction isn't in the wow factor of watching him walk on the water or even peter getting to step out of the boat the satisfaction isn't any of the miracles themselves that He did, the satisfaction only comes through Christ. And that's what He's calling them to. You see, the people that are coming out to Him, their sights are too low. They're chasing the miracles and wanting to set Him up as King because, hey, we can quit our jobs and He'll feed us. When we get sick, He'll heal us. Jesus says that's not what this kingdom is all about. You're seeking the wrong things. You got the, you got, you're so locked into the here and now that you're missing the bigger picture. What you really need is not the miracle, it's the miracle doer. It's Christ. It's not the, the things that He's accomplishing, it's Him. So that's what's involved in the miracles. What's in the meaning? The meaning of the miracles. And He, he points out basically two different things that stand out. The first contrast that He points out is the temporal versus the eternal. He takes them and he feeds them some bread, which is temporary, right? It satisfied their hunger, but it's gonna go away. He leaves during the night, they come find him the next morning. Why? Well, could be there's breakfast time. <laughs> right? It might be it. They're, they're hungry again. They were satisfied, but it doesn't, that kind of satisfaction doesn't last. It's like Chinese food. <laughs> right? I didn't really grow up around too much Chinese food. My family, we ate a lot of we ate a lot of pizza. When I was a little kid, way before I could drive, I could give you directions to get to our favorite pizza place. A lot of Mexican food, tacos, stuff like that. We love that. We ate a lot of hamburgers. There's a place back in the town I was born in that we still go there. I'll drive a uh, hours to get there to go have a burger at this place at Miner's in Yakima. Arctic Circle was another big burger place. There were lots of places that we loved to eat and I, I could have told you at a young age how to get to each one of those, but you know, I don't even know where a Chinese food place is in the town I grew up in. We used to eat once in a while. We'd eat some at home that was just... Uh, you know those canned noodles? Is it chow mein? And then those dry, crunchy things? That stuff's horrible. <laughs> I love Chinese food now, but I remember... Um, Lisa and I, I think we were dating still. I don't even think we were married yet. I'm not, must have been. And we were hanging out with their family, and they said, "You know what? We're gonna go get some Chinese food." I was like, "Why?" <laughs> <laughs> you mean like those crunchy noodles and stuff? Let's get a pizza. You know, <laughs> that's kind of where I was coming from. But they took me to a, a place, and uh, they, they took me to a good Chinese food place, and I have loved Chinese food ever since. But I noticed about two hours later, it's like. Do we have any left over? It's only fitting, but it's temporary. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's saying, look, you keep trying to satisfy yourself with the things that are temporary. You need to look towards the eternal. In fact, notice all throughout this passage, in verse 27, He tells them, look to the food that endures to eternal life. And then later in the same chapter, verse 33, for the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. What he's doing at this point, he's comparing it to Moses and God through Moses giving bread to the world. And they say, you know what, we know that God gave us bread through Moses. And Jesus says, Moses didn't give you that bread, God gave you that bread. And that was just a picture. He says, I'm the true bread that comes from heaven. He's comparing it to that and he's saying, that's what you need is this bread that gives life. Well, In verse 40, it says, For this is the will of My Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. In fact, there's about three different times that He mentions that statement too. I will raise Him up. I will raise Him up. I will raise Him up. What is He doing? He's setting their sights forward to a day when they will be in a resurrected life. In other words, this eternal life. If we look down verse 47, He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. In verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Verse 54, whoever feeds on My flesh and drinks My blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In verse 57, The living father, as the living father sent me and I live because of the father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And then even on down into chapter, verse 68, says Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal Life. You see, the whole point is you got a group of people that are coming to follow Christ and they're even threatening to take and make him king. But why? It's because they want a couple of the perks. They want the health plan, they want the meal plan, maybe the show, the entertainment that comes along with it. You realize that the Roman Empire had 93 days of the year that the government provided games for the people to be entertained by. That was their main motto of the Roman Empire was bread and carnival. Feed them and entertain them. Keeps them loyal. They wanted the food. They wanted the entertainment. We're good. Jesus says your sights are way, way too low. You need the eternal, not the temporal. But then also, lastly, the literal versus the allegorical. The literal versus the allegorical. And it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. Because down through this passage, they think that they're taking the literal, right? They say, we know that Moses gave us bread. That's a, something we can grab, we can feel, we can eat it. We, that's something we can latch on to. Jesus says, that's not the literal thing. Actually, Moses and the bread, that's the allegory. During the time of Moses and God providing bread in the wilderness so that they could live in the wilderness, have food in the wilderness, Jesus says, actually, that's the allegory. That's not the reality the literal, the real deal, the true bread is Christ. What God did through Moses in the wilderness was the picture of the reality. Jesus is the reality. That's what he's telling me. He says, I'm the true bread that's coming from heaven. This, Moses and that, that, that experience, that whole picture, that was all an allegory. That was all a picture to show you what God was going to do in the future. I am the reality. I am the true bread. What did the bread accomplish in the wilderness? It accomplished life. You know what? I am the life. And it's not a fading life. And he says, this is how, this is where the allegory breaks down. You know, analogies always do that. Allegories always, they always break down at some point. There is no such thing as a perfect allegory. They always break down. It's kind of like learning out parables. I remember in college learning about the parables that Jesus taught. The first rule of understanding a parable is don't try to make it stand on all fours. Well, what does that mean? Well, Chairs have four legs, right? And you've got to sit on it. And the point is that there is no parable that lines up perfectly with the situation that you're trying to teach. They have a truth that it contains and that truth is what you're trying to get across, but at some point the parable breaks down and it doesn't quite line up perfectly and that doesn't matter because that's not the part that's important. Well, that's exactly the thing here. He says, what's the difference? Moses, the children of Israel in the wilderness, God provides bread and they live. God's providing life in the wilderness. Where does the allegory break down? Jesus says, you know where it breaks down? They all died. Life was provided in the wilderness, but it didn't last. They all died in the wilderness. And then their children went on to inherit the promised land. But with Christ, the life is everlasting. The life is eternal. That's why the first one, the Moses in the wilderness, that's the allegory. I'm not saying that it's an allegory as in it didn't happen. It happened. It's historical. But it was an allegorical point to to picture what Christ was going to do in the future. And so the goal of all this is that Jesus says, look, you've got your focus too low. You're trying to gain satisfaction and it looks like you're aggressive at it, but you're grabbing all the cheap stuff. The cheap stuff isn't satisfying. It's temporal. You need to set that stuff aside so you can focus on the eternal you're clinging to these allegories and these pictures of, the, of what Christ would do, but you're missing the point of what He is doing. He's saying you've got to set your sights higher. You know what? If you find yourself going through this life dissatisfied, it's probably you probably on one hand got your sights set too high. You're thinking you need to have too much of this world and you don't need it. And on the other hand, you've got your sights set way too low. You see, the reason that you're grasping at the little things that are temporal now is because you're missing the view on Christ. And you're settling. Don't settle.